name is Ellen Lochelle, the Director of Product Management at ClareBridge, which is a text analytics company in Reston, Virginia. So we're, I brought you on to talk about sentiment analysis. It's kind of interesting. Sentiment analysis is one of those things that the first time you encounter the phrase, you kind of intuitively know what it means, but of course there's some details to it. Is there a formal definition or many formal definitions that get followed to describe what exactly sentiment analysis is? The way I normally describe it is a quantitative method to think about the polarity of text. In my personal experience, I try to separate it actually from the notion of emotions and really think about just truly the positivity or negativity that's expressed in a piece of text. What are some of the use cases people come to you for? Why is sentiment analysis useful or important? I think sentiment analysis helps to provide some structure to text that often doesn't have any. For example, a survey might come with a rating or a score, but there are a lot of pieces of text that don't have the benefit of that kind of metadata. So sentiment provides this sense of a unifying metric that we can use across different kinds of texts to understand basically the sense, right? How positive or how negative um, the customer is, is, is expressing. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the objectives. Like, do we try and classify an entire, I don't know if I'm a, a restaurant review site, is it the whole review or are we going to break that down? Or how do you generally approach where the sentiment analysis gets applied? Different people have different answers to that question. I think academically, you see a lot of folks doing it at the document level, trying to get one specific label or one specific score for an entire text. Um, at ClareBridge, we work specifically in the customer experience management space. And this is this niche but very, very valuable industry that tries to understand what customers are saying to those companies that they work with. And we work with those companies. So in a sense, we're trying to help those companies uh, understand what their customers are saying. So for us, we do it a little bit differently. It's really important that we understand each aspect of a customer's piece of feedback. So if we think about an online review or even a social media post, a customer might talk about a lot of different kinds of things within that feedback. If we're thinking about a hotel stay, they might talk about both the check-in experience, the cleanliness of the room, maybe the service provided by the, the cleaning staff. And some of those things might be positive, others might be negative, and others might be neutral. The ClareBridge approach for sentiment is actually taking things down to the clause level. We break apart a text into its independent clauses. In some cases, that aligns pretty cleanly with a sentence. In other cases, it doesn't. We evaluate sentiment at that granular level to enable analytics for these companies down to different aspects of the customer's experience. We haven't yet covered the topic on the show, but in my own training on NLP, I have gotten very familiar with tree-based uh, stuff, so where you can use a grammar and break a sentence down into its parts of speech and its you know, noun phrases and verb phrases and all that. Is that what you mean by a clause or do you mean something else? Yeah, exactly. So we use NLP um, for each of our 21 supported languages, and we're breaking down every single sentence that comes in into its component parts. Part of that includes finding these individual tokens, finding the lemmas, which are the effectively the root form of the word. We're also finding the parts of speech and then understanding how those all work together, how they're related. And effectively, an independent clause is a set of text that has both a subject and a predicate. So it's got that subject, the person or the entity, and also some sort of actions. For example, the sentence we always go to to illustrate this point is, the service was very good, but the quality was very bad, right? For a statement mm. like that, which for you know normal text could truly occur within a single grammatical sentence, a capital letter in a period, 
it really expresses these two different thoughts, right? One is a very positive association and one is a very negative association. So when Clara Bridge is analyzing this text, we'll actually understand that grammatically, it's two separate thoughts. The service was good, it's one thought. And then the second thought is the quality was very bad. So we'll actually split that from a, a data structures perspective and assess the sentiment of those pieces separately. So you'd mentioned that uh, your services work on 21 languages. I presume there's no one on staff who speaks all 21, <laughs> no. maybe not even a coverage of everyone speaking every language. How do you deal with so many varieties when you don't necessarily have a native speaker around? For those 21 languages, we do do them natively. So we're not translating per se, but we have the benefit of having multiple computational linguists and other linguists on staff. Uh, and the benefit of that is even if they don't natively speak those languages, they understand how the languages work grammatically, or they can study a grammar book and understand how they work grammatically. So we rely a lot on their expertise and then also reach out to independent contractors when we need to for those individuals who are actually linguists trained in those native languages. The combination of those two things normally is sufficient. And I think the other thing about you know working with other languages is that linguistically, the structure of a language doesn't change very quickly. What changes is commonly the vocabulary. So as long as we codify that structure maturely, we're probably going to be able to do all right and then periodically update for vocabulary changes. I'm curious about how those vocabulary changes might evolve in different settings. You know, we could debate whether saying I love it or I like it is a stronger sentiment and that sort of things. And maybe in some cases it is, some cases it isn't. And there's no real ground truth for that. Some of it's cultural or, or background. You get into situations where there's ambiguities like that that you have to sort out. Oh, my goodness. All the time. There are so many. Um, I mean, you can think about the word sick, right? I could oh, yeah. Say, I could say um, this experience was really sick and be talking about something that I'm absolutely enthralled with, very excited about. Or I could say, you know, uh, the food at your restaurant made me sick. And obviously, a, a company would not want that second one to come across as positive. That would be probably a pretty bad thing for their <laughs> PR department. So what we offer is the ability for each of our customers to make modifications to what we consider our out-of-the-box ground truth. There are words that commonly mean the same thing across most of our customers, right? In almost every situation, love is a positive word. But there are other ones like sick or the word thin often comes up, you know, a thin sheet in a hotel is bad, but a thin screen uh, for an iPhone is good. Mm -hmm. uh, we allow them to make those modifications, or I'll give you one more, which is the word outstanding, right? We would notionally, as English speakers, say outstanding is really positive. We should give that basically the strongest positive sentiment we can. But when you're a bank and someone's balance is outstanding, that's about the worst thing you can have. So it really goes both ways. And Clarebridge allows our customers to make these modifications on the fly. How, how does that end up getting into play? Do you retrain a model or can we talk a little bit about what's under the hood and how you adapt to those different situations? Yeah, sure. So our sentiment engine is actually mostly a rules-based engine, which we believe for the purposes of our product, right, being a basically a business intelligence tool, it's really important to most of our end users to have full control and transparency about how the sentiment is reaching it, the conclusions that it's getting to. For example, you went to your boss and said, well, everything's negative. And they say, okay, but why? Uh, and you say, oh, the algorithm did it, right? That's not necessarily a particularly good answer if you're going to try to make you know, multi-million dollar business decisions off of it. So out of the box, it's mostly a rules-based system. 
it's a combination of both individual word and phrase-based rules. And uh, those phrase-based rules actually can get pretty sophisticated. So not just bigrams or trigrams or any kind of n-gram, but actually we can build rules off of relationships linguistically, which gives you a lot more control and a lot more power than just looking at individual words. So I definitely see some of the advantages about having rule-based components in that regard. And uh, I know that sentiment analysis is different from spam detection, but yeah. to, to draw a loose analogy, you can start out with rule-based systems and spam and they get you so far, but ultimately yeah. machine learning comes in. Yeah. Do you guys have any ML at place or is the problem not as difficult in that regard? Yeah, we do. And we use machine learning algorithms in different parts of our product for different purposes. But where it comes into play for sentiment is actually we have an engine which we call sentiment suggestions. It actually works on word to vec which I'm pretty sure you've covered in earlier episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and it is looking for words within your data set that may be more likely than other words to be either problematic for you or unique in your use case. For example, the word thin, right? That's one that comes up often. Thin is more likely than other words to change meaning based on context. So we use this word to vec algorithm to actually surface those words so you can get the tunings at the word level faster. So at the end of the day, it's still rules, but we're using machine learning to basically expedite and uh, more intelligently guide you in terms of the rules you should customize for your use case. Thanks to this week's sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. You know, there's one commonality I've noticed about all Data Skeptic listeners, at least the ones of you I've had a pleasure to have met. Every single one of you has an inquiring mind. And that's why I want you to check out The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is an online learning service that gives you unlimited access to thousands of video and audio lectures, all presented by passionate experts on a huge range of topics. But just to throw in a wild card this week, since you hear about the Great Courses Plus so often on the show, take a moment and check out their Ancient Astronomy Lecture Series. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oftentimes when you hear Ancient Astronomy, it's a red flag. It sounds like Eric Von Donnegat kind of stuff. But no, this is a scholarly exploration of the topics and the folklore and things like that. Most notably, work your way up to episode 20, when you'll learn about the Antikythera mechanism, an interesting relic of history that has definitely captured my attention on more than one occasion. If you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, now is the time. I've partnered with them to give my listeners an exclusive, limited-time offer. Not only can you get a free month free, you can also get the second month for just 99 cents. Two full months of unlimited learning for under a dollar. Come on, guys, get over there. That exclusive offer will only last for a few weeks, so head over right now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash data. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash data. I'm curious about how you manage when words do things like inversion or negation. You know, I am happy, I am not happy, off yep. by one word, but opposite meanings. We actually um, have a lot of gains in negation due to the fact that we're parsing all the way down to the grammatical level. So when we spot a negator and, and we maintain lists of both negators and modifiers, and those modifiers could be both amplifiers or weakeners, and we maintain lists of these within each language that we support. When we see one of those words linguistically related to a sentiment bearing word, we'll actually perform a different sort of calculation. So if it's a negator, we'll invert it. If it's a modifier, either an amplifier or a weakener, we'll either increment or decrement that sentiment value. 
which I think brings up a point I haven't covered yet, uh, Clearbridge works on an 11 point sentiment scale. So it's not just a positive, negative or neutral calculation. We're actually providing a score that allows customers to aggregate it and analyze it at a macro level. Should I assume that one is extremely negative, 11 is extremely positive, and I guess five or six, whatever's in the middle there is the neutral? Yeah. So actually we go from positive five to negative five uh, and we use zero as our neutral. But yeah, notionally you're on the right track. <laughs> That's your way's a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We think it's easier to think about zero as kind of the, the home base, so to speak. It does make it easier too, because if you have both positive and negative sentiment within the same sentence, it might end up neutralizing back to the middle, which is again, back to zero. Mm. And why the five point scale? Why not two point or, or three point or 20 point? The, the exact rationale for why 11 points actually precedes me, but I can speak to a little bit of how the five to five really comes into play. So every word within Clarebridge is given a value, but generally those values actually don't go all the way out to the fives. They stay more central. So generally two to two with three to three being the extremes for something like fantastic or nauseating on the negative side. But we leave this space on the end, the fours and fives, for negators and modifiers to work their magic. So if we had a sentence like it was terrific, right, and we scored that as a five, if, you know, Kyle, you say it was extremely terrific, there'd be nowhere for it to go. So by leaving the space at the end, we uh, we basically afford for kind of the, the fluencies of the language um, to take it in a more extreme or a less extreme direction. I would imagine a significant amount of what you're asked to parse by your customers is user-generated content. Absolutely. Which, yeah, unfortunately doesn't always bear the grammatical qualities and other no. things we, we might hope to expect. Can you talk about how that makes your tasks more challenging? Oh, it's so much more challenging. And I'll add to that, not only user-generated content, but we're working with a lot of transcriptions right now from mm. call centers. The difference between a transcription and even user-generated content, which in some cases is even better than audio, right, is that there's no punctuation, there's no capitalization in a phone call. Those are constructs that we all use in text to communicate better and to avoid ambiguity. So yeah, there's a lot of challenge here. From a sentiment perspective, we do the best we can. And a lot of times the keywords are going to be present, even if the construct is not perfect from like a linguistic perspective. But we're, we're very fluid and we're always picking up new things. Like we have sentiment for certain emojis. We allow our customers to tune emojis the way that they want. For example, the poop emoji, right? In some mm -hmm. cases, that could be a very positive thing. In some cases, it could be a very negative thing. Uh, and we allow our customers to make those modifications. Similarly, the term AF, am I allowed to curse? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So the term AF, as in as fuck, can often be used as a, a strengthener or a, a modifier to intensify what's trying to be um, expressed. And so we're, we're constantly on the move looking for those sorts of changes, even when perhaps the grammar is not perfect in, in user-generated content. Maybe this reflects my, my age or that I'm not hip or something, but I was unfamiliar with AF, actually. <laughs> I would guess that new lexical things like that show up periodically. And when they start to show up, they're infrequent in your data sets. They're not in any pre-trained things you're looking at. Can you talk about the struggle to keep up with the evolutional language? So like I said earlier, it's generally a vocabulary or lexical challenge rather than a structural one, which is good news for us because the structural stuff is harder to program. The vocabulary side of it is a bit easier, and we 
we're always on the lookout for things, but we often let our customers guide us as well. So if there's new uses of terms, we can work with them to figure out what those might be. And if we discover that that actually is common across many customers, we will regularly update our out-of-the-box set so any future customers would also benefit from what we've learned in the past. AF was one of those that actually popped up. I wasn't familiar with it for a while either. I had to ask my much hipper younger sister what it meant <laughs> at one point, um, but then I started seeing it everywhere and uh, we, we changed it out of the box. And I have to ask you the elephant in the room question. How do you manage sarcasm? Yeah, sure. Everybody always asks. It's always a matter of time. Uh, and I always answer in the same slightly snarky way, so I apologize in advance. But basically, Clarebridge handles sarcasm uh, about as well as a human, which is to say not very well at all. Sarcasm is a difficult problem for all of us. It's especially difficult in writing because so much of that context drives what the, the writer intended. So sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. However, we've started to pay attention to some of the linguistic research in this field because it turns out there are actually a lot of different kinds of sarcasm. And I think Clarebridge is particularly well positioned to handle some of them better than others. So the one I've been uh, most interested in is this combination of both positive verbs and negative aspects or vice versa. So for example, if I have a sentence like, I love sitting in traffic or I love going to the dentist, there's this conflict, a uh, sentiment conflict where you've got a positive verb, I love, and this, this negative you know, noun, so to speak, that kind of has this connotation for most people. I'm sure there are some people that truly love sitting in traffic and truly love going to the dentist. Admittedly, I'm not one of them. But, you know, when, when you have this conflict, it creates this dissonance. And because Clarebridge allows you to create sentiment rules based on relationships between words and also the sentiment of those words, we can find these situations where you have a word like love or like or adore and another word which has a negative connotation. And when those are related, we can say, hey, you know what? That looks a little funny. And maybe that they, they intended the opposite meaning. The other thing we've noticed, a lot of times in, on Twitter, on social media, people will actually conclude a post with hashtag sarcasm or hashtag sarcastic or hashtag not to try to guide the reader toward interpreting it in the opposite non-literal context. And part of our sentiment suite also is being able to tune things based on their position in a sentence. So when we see the word sarcastic as a hashtag at the end, we can also use that as a clue that maybe we should flip the sentiment of, uh, of the whole sentence. Earlier, we were talking about how customer experience management is one of your premier use cases. Could you talk a little bit about how a person in charge of such an area at a company benefits from the tools you provide? Sure. Yeah. Customer experience management is our MO. We were born in 2006, specifically with this idea that there's a lot of unstructured feedback in the world, and most companies are building their business processes and making their decisions simply based on the structured feedback, and that you know a lot of the value is, is stuck in the text. So sentiment and uh, topic modeling really came at the beginning of our, of our evolution as a company. And so when we're working with, with our customers, a lot of times they'll either be in marketing departments, they'll be in IT departments, product departments, and we're even seeing this birth of, of customer experience departments. So they'll use us in a number of ways. They will often use us, uh, like I mentioned earlier, as a unifying metric across all their data sets. So if they want to understand holistically how their customer base is feeling, whether they're positive about something, negative about something, they'll rely on sentiment to do that. 
They'll also use it to make product decisions or change processes. We can use it to determine what people like and love about a website or an app or even like a physical appliance that might exist in your home. We've also seen it really uncover more public-facing stuff. Do people like spokespeople or dislike spokespeople? Is it changing uh, the way a brand is perceived in the public eye? So it really ran, runs the gamut, but I would say the goal generally is to assess how customers are feeling about things and then use that to update the, the business, update procedures uh, to be more customer-centric. Because at the end of, day, end of the day, if your customers are happy, they're going to spend more money with you uh, and then helps your bottom line. You'd mentioned a few things earlier about how every customer can custom tailor to their own solution. I don't have the experience that I presume you have with different industries and things like that, but I would guess you have things like, I don't know, fast food restaurants and retail locations that get these you know, just horrendous reviews sometimes, <laughs> awful yeah. language, stuff like that. But in contrast, something that's more like a professional services thing, you know, I might be displeased with my accounting software, but I'm probably going to write a professional complaint, yeah. which I bet makes your job harder. Can you talk about that customization and, and the subtlety in, in some industries? Yeah, it's interesting. We work with a lot of financial services customers too. And um, a lot of them are interested, obviously, in risk and compliance. And so the sorts of feedback that we look at for them often is more rigid in nature, right? We work actually with data that people submit to the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And generally, people are not writing in there when they're happy. <laughs> so there is certainly a, a swing toward the negativity from a sentiment perspective in, in that sort of text. But what remains true about it is that some things still are more negative than others. So even if you don't have the full range of that positive five to negative five, you can still use it to understand relativity. And perhaps some things are worse than others, even if they're all negative, which again goes back to why we think it's really important to have this granular, the scale rather than just labels. The other thing um, that I wanted to mention is that we don't think sentiment is the be all end all. We think it's a tool that is used very strongly within other, with other parts of our suite. So for example, we offer tools to analyze emotion. We have recently launched a tool to analyze effort. So a quantification of how easy or how hard something is for a customer to do uh, with a company. And I think using these tools together actually provides a pretty interesting perspective on the customer's experience rather than just forcing them to be a positive thing or a negative thing about their experience. And in terms of your offering, is this obviously, you know, it's an enterprise tool. Yep. Is it also something, you know, a startup might play with or somebody at a hackathon could use an API? Yeah, absolutely. We have we have APIs, um, and in fact, a lot of people will use us as as an engine to enrich some of their internal systems as well. So we have one company, one customer, for example, that uses us to help produce their disposition notes for phone calls. So they'll take the phone call as soon as it's transcribed, run it through ClearBridge. We'll take the sentiment, they'll take the topics that are mentioned, as well as a few other pieces of information, and automatically produce effectively what are agent notes, so to speak, and, and use that, pump that into their CRM systems so that they can use it as a log against their version of the truth um, and save the time that agents would otherwise be writing those notes. So it's, it's used for that. We've also seen folks use it for more data science oriented projects. Um, we have one customer who's used it to try to predict what ice cream and tea flavors are going to go viral based on what they see people talking about on Twitter 
not just specific to their organization, but about tea and ice cream in general. And so that's been a pretty interesting project to watch develop. And where are the you know horizons of this? I don't know if maybe you consider sentiment a solved problem or not. If, if it's not, what are the interesting research questions or how close are we? What's the future of sentiment analysis? You know, in a lot of ways, I see sentiment analysis, at least within our space, this uh, kind of business intelligence, customer experience management space, as starting to become table stakes. So five to 10 years ago, when Clarebridge was a much smaller company, it was a much bigger differentiator for us. The scalar aspect to our sentiment was very unique, but we're starting to see more and more of that crop up from other tools um, that we work with or compete with. So what we're doing is starting to find other dimensions to data that we can help quantify. So effort is one. Um, We're working on other things related to emotion, related to whether issues are resolved from a customer's perspective, thinking about empathy, right? Different dimensions of text that we can quantify that really provide more granularity and more insight than just basically the polarity of text. I don't mean to suggest that sentiment's not useful. Uh, In fact, I think it actually is incredibly useful when used in conjunction with these other dimensions. And I'll I'll tell you one story, which I really, really love. Um, We work with a company that makes small kitchen appliances, things that you might have in your home on your countertop. They had been tracking the sentiment and, and some of the feedback that their competitors were getting specifically around pressure cookers. And they had always known pressure cookers to elicit a lot of worry and fear from people, people who were afraid that these pressure cookers were going to blow up their houses. Mm-hmm. So because of that, they had never entered the market for pressure cookers. They just never produced one. They figured it was best to stay away from a potential lawsuit. But they noticed upon scraping reviews and, and analyzing competitor feedback on competitive products that customers were still talking about worry and still talking about fear, but actually the sentiment around those things had flipped. We would assume that worry is always a negative concept, but all of a sudden people were starting to say, I'm no longer worried about the safety of this product. Um, And that coincided with the launch of Instapot. Once they saw that, they gained the confidence actually to enter a competitive product in the market. So I thought that was a super fascinating combination of both emotion and sentiment. And truly, if you had looked at those pieces independently, I don't think you would have found that story, right? We would have just seen people still being worried about safety of of pressure cookers, or we would have seen something get positive. But it was really when you put those pieces together that it, it helped them change their business model. Well, Ellen, where can people follow you online? Feel free to call, uh, follow us um, on the Clarebridge website. We've got a blog. And then me personally, I'm at Ellen Falchi on Twitter and on LinkedIn as well. So feel free to find me there. Well, I'll link to both in the show notes. Thanks again for taking the time to come on and share your experiences. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 